Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, August 20th, we're studying Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 to 39. We come to the center of the book of Lamentations, not only structurally, but theologically. The steadfast love of the Lord, his never-ending mercy, that forms the foundation for the book of Lamentations, and brings hope to sinners even in the midst of great sorrow and suffering. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharp Iron. I'm charmed to be here, Pastor Apple. Pastor, Pastor Roth, as we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. We're right in the middle of this third poem within the Book of Lamentations. What should we know about that poem, the book as a whole, that will help us into the section we've got today? So the first section of Lamentations chapter 3 is highly personal. So there's a lot of the first-person pronouns focused on the the sufferings, it seems, of an, of an individual. And this section that we uh, come to is somewhat of an interlude in which it makes theological reflections upon the suffering, uh, suffering in general, I would say. And, uh, and then the, the, the last section seems to expand out a little bit more corporately to the focus of, of the people of, of Judah um, suffering more corporately. So I think that put, put all together, we see in the center a proper understanding of what the Lord is doing when he is afflicting people. Who His character does not change. He remains steadfast, loving, merciful. And uh, whether that is, again, back to the first part of the chapter, an individual suffering or the latter part of the chapter, corporate suffering. So again, this is the center of the poem in chapter three, and really the center of the book as a whole. It's a a bit of fresh air in the midst of all of Lamentations, where suddenly there is a a bit of hope, particularly in the previous section, the verse 18 ended saying that the hope was gone from the Lord. And now suddenly there's this turn that there is hope again, reflecting on who the Lord is, this theological interlude, as you called it. What where does this come from? Where did this hope suddenly spring forth in the midst of a book that's a lot of doom and gloom? Yeah, I, I mean, the author, of course, we assume is Jeremiah. And this this is a, a fascinating to compare it to the book of Jeremiah because chapters 30 through 33 are sort of the book of hope within the book of Jeremiah as well. So, you know, it could be he's taking a page out of his own playbook and uh, is is reminding his people that at the center of all reflection upon who God is, is his mercy, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, and that he, uh, when he, although he does afflict, although he does punish, it is always in service of disciplining, rebuking, correcting, and getting his people to return to him. So, I mean, and theologically, we might call what we're going to see here, you could talk about the alien work of God and the proper work of God. We've used those terms on Sharp Iron, I think, many times before, but could you refresh our memories on those? Sure. So um, another uh, related term, which we might touch on a little bit later, is, is the de- Deus Absconditus, the, the hidden God, right? 
Um, and the hidden God is correlated with his alien work. And then the Deus Revelatus, um, that is the revealed God, and that is his proper, and, and that correlates with his proper work. So his alien work is when he punishes, he kills, he uh, har- hardens, um, in order to drive people to basically the, the, the to bottom out, uh, and so that then they're ready to receive his proper work of restoration, forgiveness, and lifting up. Um, and the reason we we'll get to this at, in um, Lamentations three thirty three. The Lord's alien work is not from his heart, you might say, because it says he doesn't afflict his people from his heart. He, he forgives and loves and uh, cherishes his people from his heart. But the alien work is something that is, is not um, what he's aiming at, I would say. He's, he's aiming at getting us to realize his love, but sometimes he has to chasten and discipline before we can be prepared to receive that. So like the, I mean, I'm trying to think of just an example in sort of our lives would be the reason we discipline our children is not to make them feel bad, but so that they, be, they grow into godly Christian men and women. Exactly. And then to apply it to the church, I would think of First uh, Corinthians chapter five, where we've got that scumbags, you know, uh, shacked up with a stepmom and, uh, Paul says, you know, deliver him over to Satan for the, uh, the, the killing of his flesh so that, right, so that he can later be restored, so that he wakes up and smells the burning sulfur and returns to the forgiving, merciful Lord. Uh, so, so, yes, this excommunication or church discipline is, is an alien work that we do um, according to the law, but God's proper work, his desired work, is to apply the gospel. But that can only occur, the, the gospel can only be be applied to penitent sinners. And I think that's what we're going to see here in Lamentations 3. And really, as the book progresses as a whole, the people are becoming, or they are already, penitent sinners, which they weren't that in the book of Jeremiah by and large. But now, having experienced the destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah leads them in this lament, and they do begin to confess their sins. We, we won't see it quite as much in our particular text today as we will in tomorrow's text and in some of the other places. But we do see the, the penitential nature of the people at this point. And so this theological reflection here is, is quite appropriate as they, they consider how all of this is working out in their own lives and their experience in the destruction of Jerusalem and everything they've been through. Any, any further thoughts on that or the book as a whole before we jump into the text? Well, just to tie in with what you said, we are going to get that reference to putting the face in the dust. Mm. And that really is a strongly, um, you know, repentance-oriented action in the Old Testament. And we'll, we'll, we can look at a couple of other verses when we get there. But I do think you do see that that repentant theme here in this text. Mm. Let's jump into the text then. Again, we're in Lamentation 3, beginning at verse 19 this morning. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. 
for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? That's our text for today, Lamentations 3, verses 19 through 39. So, Pastor Roth, as, as the text begins, again, this is a, a bit of a turning point within this middle poem here in the book. Verse 18 had ended that, you know, this individual, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Suddenly now in verse 19, he's praying. He's asking the Lord to remember his affliction and his wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Any comments about the transition that's made there? And then the language there, the wormwood and the gall, is probably one that most Christians are familiar with from various hymnody, but it's worth an explanation, I think, because we don't usually talk about that in common language. Sure, yeah. To start with the remember my afflictions and my wandering, you know, that that key word there is remember. And so when the Lord remembers and turns to his people, as he does for the Israelites when they're in slavery in Egypt, he remembered his people and he acts. And so that's a, that's a key word for showing that the Lord is going to do something. Um, he's, to, he's going to visit and redeem his people. He's going to show his mercy because he's going to remember his covenant that he made with them. He's going to remember the promises that he's made. And this is uh, to point forward then to the Lord's Supper. This is one of those comforting things about it is not only do we do it in remembrance of Christ and what he's done for us, but the Lord remembers us in the sacrament and actually delivers to us the salvation he achieved for us on Calvary. What about the wormwood and the gall? How, how does, what does that even mean? Sure. So wormwood is a bitter tasting herb that uh, the Israelites uh, and Judeans were, were familiar with. And gall is an animal bile that's used in medication, although it's possible that gall is poisonous, hmm. um, is, is a type of poison. So um, I, I, uh, uh, a, a connection back to the book of Jeremiah is Jeremiah 9.15. So therefore the, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. So that uh, kind of correlates with with the, the wormwood and the gall there. And that, of course, is the Lord's judgment upon his people. Because of their rebellion against him, this is what they're going to suffer. Now Jerusalem has fallen. The people are, they have this bitter taste in their mouth because of what the Lord has done. Um, <clears throat> there, there is also this very interesting passage in Revelation 8 where the third angel blows his trumpet in judgment. And the name of, uh, and the star falls and uh, from heaven and it falls on the waters of the earth, and the star is wormwood, and a third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So that wormwood theme of judgment is something that resounds not only in the Old Testament, but also to the very end of the New Testament. Mm. Hey, that passage, just briefly, from Jeremiah 9, which also is a reminder of just in the previous text, you know, he, had, he has sated me with wormwood. Just a reminder here that as he's praying in verse 19 remember my affliction, my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, that the Lord is the one who's done this. He's right. the one who sent that. And it's a, it's a good reminder because, and, and it is going to come up as the text progresses, as we've already heard, but it's just a good reminder that this isn't sort of Jeremiah, the people suffering for 
no good reason, but they are suffering because the Lord is bringing his, he is the one afflicting them. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they brought it on themselves, certainly. Now, the wormwood and the gall, the language, interestingly enough, comes up in a couple of Lenten hymns. So, um, Go to Dark Gethsemane speaks of, you know, oh, the wormwood and the gall, oh, the pangs his soul sustains. So, we're to go to go to Gethsemane and, and see the suffering of Jesus. And then also, all hail the power of Jesus' name, which speaks of sinners whose love can ne'er forget the wormwood and the gall. Now, what's fascinating to me about this is that there's no there's no indication that wormwood is is something ever given to Jesus in the in the Gospels, as far as I can tell. And and at the point when um, they offer Jesus wine to drink in Matthew 27, mixed with gall, he uh, he tastes it, but he won't drink it. And so the the that's an interesting uh, point. Uh, we usually assume that Jesus did not drink the gall because it it was possibly a medication that would have lessened his suffering, or if it was a poison. He certainly wouldn't have drunk it and sped up his death. Uh, so either way, he he rejects that. So um, they are curious. Uh, it's curious that they they appear in these hymns, but uh, um, nonetheless, I think what I want to take away from this is all of the experiences of the Israelites, all the experiences of the Judeans, ultimately are pointing forward to the afflictions of Christ. And as you were reading through the whole text, you know, there's so many. Uh, parts of this text that just jump out and say, well, that sounds a lot like Jesus. This seems like it's talking about sort of like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, the the afflictions that our Lord Jesus endures in his passion out of his love for us. And because he is Israel reduced, reduced to one, because salvation comes from the Jews, he is the one who then is going to fulfill all of these things and provide an exodus not an exodus and uh, a return from exile to his people that was was only partially fulfilled in the Old Testament. We reflected a little bit on that yesterday as well in the beginning, the very first verse of Lamentations 3. It starts, I am the man who has seen affliction. And we talked about, you know, who is that man? Is or is it Jeremiah? Is it just an unnamed Judahite who was sent into exile? Or can we also see it as Christ? And that's where we that's where we came down is that yeah, you can see this as Christ assuming these things on himself for our sakes. And I think that that seeing the way that, you know, the wormwood and the gall gets picked up in Christian hymnody shows how the church has looked at this text throughout its its history and how we can apply it as well, just as you were saying. And I, I really think it's going to open up those the coming verses, 22 and following, which are the most well-known verses from the Book of Lamentations, to be more than just God is kind by waking me up every morning, but there's more going on there in terms of the resurrection of our Lord. But maybe we'll we'll save that for, for a minute well, or two. Well, just very briefly, you know, we're talking about the Lord and who is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So one of the most common ways that the New Testament shows the connection between Jesus and the Old Testament is by calling him Lord. And so, so it's something we pass over without giving it a second thought. Um, I think about this, for example, when we sing the hymn, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. You know, it doesn't mention Jesus. It doesn't really talk about the New Testament. It's more of an Old Testament psalm paraphrase. But we as Christians are to, to read these texts, understanding that all things had to be fulfilled in Jesus the Christ, who is Lord, the Son of God from eternity. So as we move on to Lamentations 3, now into verse 20, my soul continually remembers 
it, so I'm assuming that that it is referring back up to verse 19 and is bowed down within me. But then in verse 21, there's a transition. But this I call to mind, and that is going to point us forward. Therefore, I have hope. Take us into those two verses. Yeah, I mean, this just um, really sounds a lot like the Psalms. Um, and, and I think that <clears throat> what, what, what Lamentation should do is point us in the direction of the entire Psalter as a place to flee in times of trouble so that we can see how the Lord has repeatedly, um, well, brought his people low. Um, this is not unique. Um, you know, Psalm 44, which Paul quotes in Romans 8, you know, we're, um, uh, we're, we're, we're basically the, the reproach, um, you know, we're, we're like lambs to the slaughter, that sort of thing. Um, the people are struck down on account of, of the Lord, um, but then he always lifts up. So a couple of psalms that I uh, picked out to, to connect with our verse here, Psalm 44, 25, for our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. And, and this then does have that sense of not only being brought low by the Lord, but also that sense of repentance. But then Psalm 42, 5, why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So, you know, the Psalter had already been in, been written down long before, and so the people of Israel have these psalms, and, and Jeremiah himself would have known the psalms, and so he's able to take recourse to these texts and, and find that encouragement, and that's why I think there's so many echoes of the psalms in Lamentation. So, I mean, such that the book of Jeremiah—no, sorry, not the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, as the author of Lamentations, you're saying is is calling on psalms that he knows and is echoing those and applying those, almost like he's, he's preaching a sermon to the people who've gone through the destruction of Jerusalem, and his text is the Psalter. Well, I mean, there are some verbatim, you know, basically verbatim um, echoes and, and allusions to the Psalter in, in Lamentations. So that, that would be my, my suspicion. That yeah. sounds good. Yeah, I mean, I like that. I just, it's one of those things that I guess I don't often think of in the Old Testament as much as I should. I think about it in the New Testament where you see, say, the Apostle Paul quote from the Psalter or somewhere else in the Old Testament and he preaches on it, or Peter does this on the day of Pentecost. Joel 2 is his sermon text and he's quoting from Psalm 16 as well. So you, you think about it in the New Testament, how the Apostles do it, but sometimes you forget, or at least I do, in the Old Testament, that the prophets are preaching on what's been given to them from Moses and from David and the Psalter. And it's just a, it's a good, healthy reminder that you know, Jeremiah is working with the Word of God that he's gotten written down as well. Absolutely. I mean, everything, um, you know, from, from the Torah on, from, from the Pentateuch onward, is, is um, a written and preaching culture. Obviously, before the Torah is written down, we don't know whether there's any texts, but you know, the Hebrew people, the Israelites and Jew Jews become a people of the book. And they're constantly, uh, and this is why the synagogues develop, right? So that the, that there's, throughout the throughout the world, as, as uh, the diaspora spreads, they can gather on a weekly basis to hear the word. It's not just the temple at Jerusalem where the, the practice of sacrifice goes on and the local Jews can, can go and hear the teaching but it spreads out throughout the world. And so the word, word of the Lord is continuously going out, and that's going to set the stage then for the New Testament when the apostles can go out and share the word with those who already know the Old Testament. 
So as we move through the text, then you get more of these echoes from other parts of the Old Testament as you come to the verses, again, that are probably the most famous within the book of Lamentations. Although we don't often read chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5, we usually get this part in Lamentations 3, beginning at verse 22. And I'll repeat it because it is such a wonderful text. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'll, I'll just pause with those two verses, Pastor Roth. Yeah, I mean, this takes us straight back to the Lord's revelation to Moses in Exodus 34. When he proclaims his name, he proclaims himself before Moses and says, here's what the, Lord, the Lord's name means. It means it's a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So by uh, Jeremiah just saying that phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, it evokes all of that that his hearers would have known from the Exodus, uh, from, from Exodus 34, and reminds them that this is who the Lord is. And remember back in Exodus 3, that he is, I am, I always will be, I always have been. You know, his name, I am, means that he is, you know, existence itself. And, and, and he's changeless, as Malachi says in Malachi 3, the Lord, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And so the reliability of the Lord, the, the steadfastness of his, trust, of his uh, promises um, is something that they can anchor their hopes in, even at the lowest point. Well, and even, I mean, just in the greater con- context of Exodus 34, that's right after the golden calf. Mm-hmm. And the Lord had wanted to destroy his people. He told Moses, I'm going to destroy them and I'll make you into the nation, Moses. And Moses prays on behalf of the people and the Lord relents. And I think that, I mean, just for Jeremiah to echo that broader context is really important where Israel is at this moment in exile, having seen Jerusalem, the temple, their homeland destroyed, the, every, everyone's gone. What's the Lord doing? For him to call on those texts from Exodus 34, I mean, that fuller picture really gives, again, a, a really uh, great hope to the people more than just, you know, I woke up this morning, thank you, God, for for your mercies this morning and waking me up. That's great. I mean, that that is the Lord's mercy to wake you up in the morning. But this this text is so much richer than than just that one small application. It really is, and and I think that it's, it's a pattern that shows itself again and again throughout the scriptures that God's people end up in terrible pickles, but the Lord intervenes to to redeem them, to save them, to lift them back up. And um, I, I also want us to take encouragement from this passage, not in a generic way, but but in seeing that the Lord in Jesus Christ, the the Lord through His Son Jesus Christ, um, has brought His Son down to the lowest depths of the abyss and brought him back up again, just as he did for his Old Testament people. So he's going to do the same for us, no matter how dark our road is on a given day. And this is why Paul says in Romans 15, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance, so it doesn't say through rosy, you know, rose, rose gardens and easy days, but through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, expectation that the Lord is going to keep his promises to us as well. And that connection to, to Jesus is the, the central part of that, because we've seen how the Lord has accomplished these things in his son. And again, to go back to what we were saying earlier, connecting to what we read yesterday with the I am the man and Jesus being the man, I think, again, we can see within this part of chapter three, a 
you know, a conversation about what's happening to Jesus, Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet by the end of his time on the cross, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Right. And and how can Jesus do that? Well, because he knows that resurrection is coming on the third day. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's the mercies here in Lamentations 3 are new in the morning, because that's when yeah. Jesus rose. Exactly. Yeah. And speaking of the man, remember what, what does Pilate, yeah. Pilate do? He points to him and says, behold the man. And yep. Right. So, so again, I mean, this, this picture that we're getting in Lamentations 3, we see how Jesus fulfills it. And then for all of us who are in Jesus, we have that same hope. We, we know that the Lord, as you say, will bring us through even the darkest of roads because he's done that for his son, Jesus Christ, and he's going to do that for all who are in him. We have been connected to him in the water and word of holy baptism. And so this is our journey as well. Uh, so that when we find ourselves in the first part of Lamentations 3, that this is the hope that we can call to mind as well. Pastor Roth, take us into to verse 24. It, it, you know, if you just as a reminder, kind of taking these in triplets because the acrostic form of this poem is to have three verses in a row that begin with the same Hebrew letter. So verse 24 is in that same stanza. Take us into verse 24. Yeah. So this, um, the Lord is my portion. And so, you know, portions, a, a word we, we probably use more in, in regards to like, I don't know, a food portion or something yeah. like that today. But I mean, here we're talking about more of an inheritance, you know, um, uh, it's, it's, a uh, well, think about, um, Mary and Martha and Jesus, right? Um, Martha, Martha, you're troubled about many things, but Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What is the good portion? The good portion is, listening to the word of Jesus and, and, um, and receiving the word made flesh and, and everything that he is and has. And so to say that the Lord is my portion means that the Lord is my all. And uh, it's like saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? I have everything. I, I'm, I'm in not lacking anything. But before we can say that the Lord is my portion, we have in Deuteronomy 32.9, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So the Lord chooses his people as his portion, as his, his chosen ones, his, his selected holy group of people, a kingdom of priests and a holy people. Um, and he makes us his own. I am the Lord your God. And then we can say that the Lord is ours as well because he selects us and then he gives us a share in his holiness. He gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so then, so then we actually have um, him. That's, a, that's an amazing thing, that the God of the universe, the creator, is actually giving himself to us as a gift. And I think about that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, you know, in, in heaven after the, 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 you know, all enemies are put under Christ's feet, then God will be all in all, right? So we're going to possess this life alongside the Godhead in, in a completely incomprehensible way. But anyway, so this does have a, a, a definite old uh, Deuteronomy um, reference. Um, but then I, I also, another psalm, a messianic psalm um, that refers to Jesus is Psalm 16, which is quoted in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, that, you know, that the Lord will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let his Holy One see corruption. But earlier in that psalm, Jesus says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, you hold my lot. And because we're in Christ— we also can say that same thing as well. The Lord is our chosen portion in our cup. This is the, the one to whom we have devoted our lives to and who we want to dwell with. Yeah, the, the hymn, Lord Thee I Love With All My Heart, mm -hmm. picks up on that language that I, 
earth and heaven would be nothing if God, if Christ weren't there. He is our portion. And, and that is a fantastic gift that the creator of heaven and earth would give himself to us in that way. We're going to keep talking more about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO, talking Lamentations chapter three with Pastor Carl Roth. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, August 20th. We're studying Lamentations 3, verses 19 to 39 with Pastor Carl Roth. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we left off in verse 25, where we need to pick up, where in three successive verses, you get the Lord is good, and then it is good, and it is good. The Hebrew word for good begins with that letter. It's the word that shows up in each of those verses. And the reason that stuck out to me here is because in the previous section in 317 we hear my soul is bereft of peace and the esv translated i have forgotten what happiness is but there's a note that the word happiness at least in the english that's the same word hebrew for good so in 317 the writer had forgotten jeremiah had forgotten what the good is but now he remembers what the good is and it's i mean i think it's a quite a, a contrast in the two sections that we've looked at and it really adds adds to the hope that's being renewed here in this section so take us into these various things that jeremiah says are good yeah okay so the lord is good to those who wait for him to the whole, the soul who seeks him now it, we should not overlook the fact that these uh references are to people who are, are participating in something are active in something and although it would be funny to say that waiting is active um but what would be the opposite of waiting? It would be grumbling, compra- complaining, or perhaps trying to, uh, I don't know, strike bargains with foreign lands and, you know, um, figure out how to do things on our own. And so there's a, a wonderful emphasis here on the righteousness of faith, not on the righteousness of works, but rather being patient. Mm. Um, and then also, well, the soul who seeks him. Uh, what, what does Jesus tell us to do? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And there's an active element to that. We seek out the Lord's goodness by um, reading his word, by coming to him in prayer, by making use of the sacraments. So uh, the, the, uh, this connects very nicely in uh, with, with Psalm 130, which we pray during Lent, where we talk about, I wait for the, soul, my, for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. And, and uh, we know that the Lord is going to have redemption for us. It also, the seeking part ties in nicely to Deuteronomy 4, where the Lord basically tells his people, look, if you forsake me, if you do not keep your end of the covenant, then I'm going to drive you out of your own land. And that's exactly what has happened here. But what does the Lord say in verse 29, Deuteronomy 4? But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
when you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And one other verse about seeking, Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. And then the Lord talks about, again, forgiving. So this is that theme that occurs again and again and again. And given the fact that that's the pattern of the Old Testament, and there's this great emphasis in the New Testament on repentance and seeking forgiveness, uh, I think that that's something we should take seriously on a daily basis. This is the constant cycle of the Christian life, returning to the Lord, seeking the Lord, and waiting patiently for his mercy. Oh, I'm going to move us to verse 27, where it says, it's good that for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. The, the word yoke stands out there because it's, I think, a, a language that Jeremiah has used. He talked about the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar in his book. And previously in, in the book of Lamentations, back in chapter 1, we heard in verse 14, my transgressions were bound into a yoke. What's the, what's the yoke here that is good to bear in youth? I think this is the, the yoke of discipline. Um, that um, especially um, as we're young and think we know everything but are soon going to find out we don't, um, oftentimes we're going to need rebuke and correction. And so the, the Lord is going to place this yoke upon us, and it's good for us. But it's, it's, uh, it's not pleasant at the time. And the passage I thought of was, of course, Hebrews 12, that the Lord says, back in Deuteronomy again, but then referred to in Hebrews, my son, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he reproved, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So our fathers discipline us when we're young. Maybe they, they place a, a yoke of sorts upon us um, to correct us and to teach us lessons. But it's because they love us and they want to get us to grow in righteousness and in faith. Is, is the yoke here related to what Jesus says in Matthew 11, where he tells us to take his yoke upon us? Well, I mean, anytime I hear a yoke and uh, receiving a yoke from the Lord, I can't help but think of that. But it's, it, this, this sounds more to me uh, like the yoke of discipline, which is going to ultimately lead us to desire the light and easy yoke of Christ's mercy, which will give us rest for our souls. Um, now, we do place that yoke of Christ upon our own children, and it's good for them to receive it when they're young. But I don't know that that's exactly what this passage is talking about. Certainly. Yeah. That's, and that was the reason for my question, because that, that language of yoke does show up in, in more than one context and trying to differentiate. So here we're talking about the discipline that God would give, which has been a theme throughout this section that he would give so that to again, to bring his people to repentance and keep them in faith in him. Now, how is it that we receive this yoke? Well, the, the poem continues in verse 28, let him sit alone in silence when it, the yoke is laid on him. We come to this language of repentance you mentioned earlier, let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope, give the cheek to the one who strikes and be filled with insults. What What is this telling us? Right. So that dust really made me think of Job. Um, when the Lord had come to him and said, you've gotten all, you're getting all cop, cocky, you know, stay in your lane, bro. Um, you need to, uh, and, and Job confesses, you're right, Lord, I was getting too big for my britches. And so there, then Joel says, I mean, Job says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Uh, so I think that this is that yoke that's brought, brought the, the young man down to the dust so that he's, he's realizing that he's, 
He's been arrogant, proud, straying from the Lord, and now it's time for him to turn. And look at that phrase, there may yet be hope. Um, that also echoes in, in Joel 2 with the Old Testament reading appointed for Ash Wednesday, um, when the fast is declared, right? Return to the Lord, you know, um, with, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. But why, why would you return to the Lord? Because it seems like you're going to get beat up some more. No, return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he'll not turn and relent? And that, that really has that same sense. Um, you know, we should return because the Lord might very well lift us up at that point. He might make us stay in the dirt a little bit longer, right? But we know that he's good and merciful. And so he might at this very, very moment lift us back up. I think that, you know, that text from Joel 2 and this text here in Lamentations 3, there may yet be hope is a reminder that when we return to the Lord in repentance, it's not sort of we're forcing God's hand somehow that I, I put in my repentance and I get out from God the desired result. Rather, it is a, a repentance that is wrought by God's word in my heart that goes to him, not expecting anything other than for him to be who he has said to be and however he acts toward me to be just and good and right. And it's in that spirit and in, in a trust, not in a presumptuous spirit that I go to the Lord in this repentance. Precisely. Yeah. Now, this verse also then goes on to talk about a cheat getting mm. struck. And that certainly sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but it also sounds like, uh, well, in Isaiah 50, verse 6, which is messianic, I gave my back to those who, who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spinning. So I think there's, there's definitely a Christological element here. But there's also instruction for the Christian life that, um, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, we, we don't want to, um, I guess, universalize that principle and say that people should put up with abuse, right? I mean, that's what we have governing authorities for. That's what we have, you know, legal structures for. And that's what, in the, in the family household, that's what parents are for, because if a kid strikes another in the cheek. Um, but the point here is that we're not to seek retribution. We're not to seek vengeance for ourselves. Um, and in doing so, we're being Christ-like. And then being filled with insults reminded me of 1 Peter 2, where it talks about how we're called to Christ's example, that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting to himself to him who judges justly, entrusting himself to the Father. And in fact, as 1 Peter 4 says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We were watching a movie a couple weeks ago, and one of the characters says, hashtag blessed. And uh, I don't think that he was talking about uh, the blessing of being insulted for the sake of Christ. But when we are persecuted or insulted or attacked for the sake of Christ, we are blessed. So we've got a picture both of the life of Christ and then the life of the Christian who is in Christ as well. As Lamentations 3 continues, the Lord will not cast off forever. There's more of that hopeful language. And then we, we come to really a very important point theologically for this whole section. Though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. 
for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. And we want to talk a little bit about verse 33 and the way that it's translated here in the ESV as it's gotten in Lutheran study Bible. He does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men and, and how we should understand that. So, Pastor Roth, there's plenty to talk about in these three verses. Yeah, I mean, let's let's just kind of tackle that translation issue first. Um, the the translation not willingly is is more of an interpretation. Um, and the, the Hebrew is very earthy. It is from the heart. That's what it means, right? He's not going to flick from his heart. And in fact, the uh, the ESV in its more recent updates has has amended that translation to he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. The problem with not willingly is that it does seem to almost contradict verse 32 because it says, though he caused grief. Well, how is the Lord going to cause grief unwillingly? And isn't it even just kind of problematic to get into talking about, you know, parsing out exactly what's part of the will of God and what's not? Mm. I mean, let's remember our catechism. Um, there's a couple of places that mention the will of God. One is that, that he keeps us firm in his faith until we die. <laughs> so God's will is, is that, that we're ultimately going to die. Um, so, so I think that uh, we, should, we should not be embarrassed about talking about the, the fact that the Lord kills and makes alive, as Deuteronomy says. Um, also, it's in First or Second Samuel. Um, this is just the, the, the Lord is the one with whom we have to deal. And uh, it, it's more in the realm of philosophical theodicy that tries to parse things out and to say, well, this is God's active will and this is God's permissive will and so on and so forth. No, we need to deal with the Lord and he does afflict us. He uses his word to afflict us spiritually. Sometimes he afflicts us with plagues and famines and, you know, um, illnesses um, and, and uh, loss. Um, and he does these things as part of his alien work to humble us, to help us to remember that we're strangers here and heaven is our home and that we might, we shouldn't be getting too comfortable in this world because the judge is going to come at any moment. And so we need to be prepared and watchful. Um, so he does it. He does afflict. Uh, he does afflict. He does grieve, but it's not from his heart. Uh, it's, it's, it's his, it, his, what's from his heart is love, forgiveness, mercy, the promise of resurrection and life everlasting. Mm. So and that I think goes to the the matter of the you talked about earlier the hidden God and the revealed God that when we see God afflicting causing grief if when we see that what does God look like at that moment he does not look like the loving God and yet we know that he is and that's where we we at those moments where he is causing grief and afflicting we cling to what we know about him from his word and not what we're seeing at the moment. So that when, when I'm being afflicted, that does not mean that God hates me. In fact, no. I know that he loves me and what is in his heart while he's afflicting me is his love to do that proper work of keeping me in faith until I die. Yeah. I mean, one, one way of thinking about afflictions is that the Lord is hugging us just in an uncomfortably tight manner, right? He's squeezing us so tight uh, that, that, uh, but he'd be st he doesn't ever let us go. He's not forsaken us. Dr. Luther comments on this first, that, that, that people who don't recognize the faith that sees God through the lenses of suffering and the cross, the faith that does not focus on um, Christ and, and him crucified and taking up our cross and following him, that faith, which is a false faith, 
He says, people like that give themselves over to thinking that God has forsaken them and is their enemy. And I, I hearken back to that Romans 5, 4, 15, 4, 4 passage earlier where Paul talks about everything written in Scripture is to encourage us and give us endurance and hope. So um, since that's the case, even though we know from the Scriptures that the Lord does kill and make alive, that he does uh, afflict that does not mean that he wants to discourage us or drive us to despair. It is his alien work, which is preparing us for his proper work of showing mercy. I think we talked about this yesterday. The The example that always comes to my mind in the scriptures about this kind of conversation is the, the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus. She's got the demon possessed daughter. And at first he doesn't even respond to her. Right. And, you know, and then he calls her a dog and, and well, no, first the disciples say, he, you know, send her away. And then Jesus says, well, I wasn't sent to her. I was only sent to Israel. And then he calls her a dog. And throughout it all, she keeps talking to Jesus. She keeps yeah. asking for his help. It, it seems that she's got a, this. I mean, this verse is her attitude, even if she's never read the book of Lamentations. That's exactly right. And then also think about uh, Jacob wrestling with God, right? Mm. Demanding that he bless him. Mm. So, so in the midst of grief, hold on to this truth of, of who the Lord is. I mean, this is a, I think this is a really important verse for us to hold on to still as we experience whatever trials and troubles in our lives. This is a really, I mean, I think that this is one of the most applicable verses in the book of Lamentations for our Christian lives and the, the way that we live by faith and not by sight. This is absolutely true, um, but we also do want to make sure that we keep our focus on the Christian promises. What do we say in the creed every week, right? Um, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, or in the Nicene Creed, I look for, or I expect, or I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now, we also get that emphasis in a few verses earlier on waiting, and our problem uh, as as uh, as those who have the old Adam, is that he's, he's exceedingly impatient and, and drives us to grumble and complain and doubt. Um, but we, 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 uh, the, we, do not, we cannot demand that the Lord act immediately. He is going to work in his own way and in his own time. But repeatedly in the scriptures, the Lord gives us the promise that he's going to give us the gift of endurance. But, but what do we have to do? We have to continue to hear the word and trust what the word says, and uh, and not rely upon senses. That's right. Christians live according to their ears, and not according to their eyes. What we see might deceive us, but what we hear from God's word will not deceive us. So that when we see continues to to trouble us, we always run back to what we hear, to those promises of God, which always stand true, even if they they don't, even if we don't get to see them when we want. They are true. That's the faith that sustains us, that gives us the endurance when the afflictions are there. As yeah, the, and, and then also, and Ro, I mean, again, Romans 8, where Paul talks about all these things are working together for our good. And then he lists this laundry list of terrible things that are happening to us. But none of those things can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Mm-hmm. And one of those things is death. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's coming for all of us. So uh, that's, that's a, uh, all the more reason for us to return each day to the Word, and to prayer. As the text continues into verse 34, we hear some things that 
the Lord does not approve, crushing prisoners of the earth, denying justice, subverting a man in his lawsuit. What What is Jeremiah writing here? Right. So um, I think there's two things. Um, one is that this this kind of echoes the book of Jeremiah and its criticisms and calls to rebuke of the people, that there are ethical obligations that God's people must uphold, and he's, he's not going to stand idly by when people are being unjust. But I also, I wonder, and, and this is just musing, but I wonder if the Lord is talking about how the people that have, have, have it, are now enslaving um, the, the Judeans, um, if, if perhaps the Lord is hinting that he's not going to put up with their injustice either. He's using uh, the Babylonians just as he had used the Assyrians before, um, but ultimately the Assyrians, of course, are struck down, and one of the reasons for that is because of their grave injustice. So I, I think that the point is that the Lord's not going to tolerate these things anytime um, from his people or from other people's. I could see a, a little bit of both happening there in the context of Lamentations 3. The, I think the, the move for repentance for the people, that's coming first. And we'll c- catch that in the next episode when we pick up the, the end of this, where the people you know test their own ways and examine themselves and confess. So there, there does seem, I think, to be that reflection on their own sins that Jeremiah had pointed out. Now they're going to examine themselves and confess those. But I think your point about that the Babylonians aren't going to get off either, that's coming as well toward the end of this chapter where that prayer for deliverance from their enemies is coming. And, and the Lord is going to be just in his actions with both. The Our section today concludes with some rhetorical questions, uh, ultimately pointing to the Lord as the one who who speaks and what he says happens. What do we find out in those last three verses, 37 through 39? Right. So verse 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. You know, we live in a world in which people think based on various postmodern theories that words can construct reality. Um, and, and, and that is just not true when it, when it is um, regular mortals producing human language. But when the Lord speaks he, he makes things happen. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He says, this is my body and this is my blood, and it is the body and blood of Jesus. So the word of the Lord is powerful, and when he will finally speak and say, I'm going to, to bring down judgment upon the Babylonians, and I'm going to return my people to, to Israel, um, it's going to happen. So the people need not doubt that, um, but trust that uh, the, the Lord's word will accomplish that which he intends it to. However, <laughs> verse 38 is a bit sobering because is it not from the mouth of God, the Most High, that good and bad come? And here we, we kind of re- return to that theme of God's alien work and God's proper work. He does send bad. That's his alien work. But he sends good. That's his proper work. Um, and this sounds a lot like Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Uh, That, again, highlights the problem with that translation willingly, right? I mean, this is the the Lord's will is whatever he chooses to do. And and if that's things that are bad, that that we perceive as bad, then um, he's the one doing it. But um, that's why I, I push back when people will say, like, well, something good happened. Well, God is good. 
well, okay, let's flip that over on its head. Okay, so something bad just happened to you. Does that mean God is bad? No, the Lord works good and bad. He wor- mm. He speaks through law and gospel. He kills and he makes alive. Mm. So no matter what happens, I, I can, as a Christian, still say, God be praised either Amen. way. Well, you can say, God be good no matter what's happening, right? Yeah. Or God is good no matter what's happening. Yeah, God be praised through it all. Now, what about that very last verse then? Why should a living man complain a man about the punishment of his sins? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that what really jumped out at me was that adjective living, a living man. You know, life is a gift, right? Uh, I mean, did you deserve to, to be able to get out of bed this morning? Did you deserve to be born? Uh, so so uh, as, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it from God, basically, why did you boast as if you did not receive it? So we live our lives as if they belong to us, when we should be thinking of, no, this life is a gift. And what, what am I called to do each day? It doesn't, my, ha- my personal happiness doesn't matter. My preferences don't matter. My pain doesn't matter. What matters is, what does the word of the Lord say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And as we say in the catechism, for all that God has done for me, it is my duty to thank and pray, serve, and obey him. So, um, so, so there's a matter of perspective there that um, who are you to complain because God has given you countless good blessings, not to mention the promise of everlasting life. And then, as if that weren't enough, how should a living man complain about the punishment of his sins? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what we deserve. Right. As, as Luther says in the, in the fifth petition, um, you know, I, I, we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. All we should be getting every day of our lives is punishment and then hell after we die. That's what we deserve. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so the Lord really, uh, this verse is, is wonderful for driving home that, uh, that childish, uh, the, the point that our childish, sinful flesh um, is 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 so uh, ungrateful and so um, resentful, and it needs the old Adam needs to be killed. He just has to be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that new man needs to to arise to live. He's a living man, right? So we're these living men who live before God in righteousness and purity forever. So uh, this is a great verse for putting into perspective. Um, especially in the midst of our, our 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 sufferings, which oftentimes we brought upon ourselves, um, those those sufferings are ju- are, are are things that the, the that we're experiencing because we we brought it on ourselves. And nonetheless, the Lord has allowed us to live. He has not cast us down to the grave. Um, so we then should again look look up, be forgiven, restored, and take up our cross and follow the Lord. Pastor Carl Roth is the pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us today with Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 to 39. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Lamentations, comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app. The open mic feature allows you to send up to a 60-second message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.